This episode of the Artsy Podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. Artists, photographers, and designers of all kinds have used Squarespace to showcase their works, and you can do it too. Go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch your site and show your work to the world, use the offer code ARTSY to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code ARTSY, A-R-T-S-Y. Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm Abigail Kane, hosting for this episode. Don't worry, Isaac's still here. Hello. But we're going to be talking about a couple of his articles today, so we're letting him be a guest. Take a break from hosting for a while. This is so nice. I got my feet kicked back. I'm like relaxing. It's wonderful. (laughs) So we're going to be talking about two stories at the intersection of art and law. So we're also really happy to have Artsy's general counsel, Yoyoi Shinori, on the podcast today. Hi, it's great to be back. So we're going to look at two different stories, one about the legal ramifications of eating artwork. Yes, you heard that right, eating it. And we're also going to look at a second story about a Solowit artwork that's being, quote unquote, unerased on the wall of a Houston home. The Houston homeowner owns both the wall and the pigment on the wall, but not actually the artwork. So we're going to dive into why that is the case. But we're going to start with eating artwork. So to start, maybe we should just tell everybody why we wrote this story in the first place. Well, I was hungry. No, the the real reason (laughs) is I think everyone who's listened to this podcast has probably heard about VARA, which we talk about a fair amount, the Visual Artist Rights Act. It's a small provision in U.S. copyright law that's launched a thousand hot takes and, and think pieces about what it means. Basically, it entitles artists, certain visual artists, very limited set of visual artists, and I'm sure Yoyoi will come in here and correct my journalistic definition with some legal specificity, but it entitles certain visual artists certain rights over their work, uh, the right to attribution, the right to stop it from being destroyed long after they've sold it, which makes it kind of a special a special little guy in U.S. copyright law because uh, most of copyright law is about in- ensuring economic welfare from your work, whereas VARA is about something called moral rights. Did I do okay there, Yui? I think you did great. <laughs> if you want me to give you a little bit of a legal background on it. So VARA came into being in 1990, and it's the first federal copyright law that grants protection to what, again, Isaac pointed out, was moral rights. And that is the concept of what artists have the right to have done to their artwork or the types of claims that artists can make to artwork they have produced after the artwork has been produced, right? And so a couple of things um, that, for example, artists can do, creators' rights are protected in the following ways in VARA. One, the right to claim, if I'm an artist, that something is in fact mine. Two, the right to disclaim a work, to say, hey, um, that, that is no, no longer my work, that is not my work. Three, the right to not be associated with a work that's been distorted or mutilated or modified in a way that is prejudicial to me. So if I think that a work that I put out into the world has then since been mutilated or distorted to the point that it hurts my reputation, I can say, hey, that's not mine. Um, Finally, the right to prevent distortion, mutilation, or modification that would prejudice me. So again, I can say, hey, don't do that to my work because it it would potentially distort or mutilate or modify the work. Yeah. And I think, you know, you don't 
in there hear anything about eating, but you can kind of extrapolate out that certain provisions do apply to eating, uh, assuming the work wasn't meant to be eaten. That's that's quite obviously a, a mutilation or or probably even a destruction of the work. Where I kind of began my article on this was looking at this really famous work, uh, Washington Crossing the Delaware. And uh, I'm actually going to interrupt you really quick, Isaac, because uh, I like the the way he sets up the article is four different scenarios. And so I'm going to actually pose each one of these four scenarios to the two of you and have you kind of walk us through. So scenario number one, I somehow legally acquired the 1851 masterpiece Washington Crossing the Delaware by Emmanuel Gottlieb Lutz. I'd like to eat it. Yeah. So this is where I began, because I think what's interesting about Vara and the whole concept of moral rights is that artwork doesn't just belong to the person who owns the physical copy. It belongs in some sense to the artist and in some greater sense to to all of us, to everyone, because it's a cultural object that we should all be able to enjoy. What's interesting is that it doesn't apply to some of history's most famous paintings because history's most famous paintings are old. And Vara only applies for the life of the artist plus 70 years. So you can look at this question this hypothetical see 1851 and know yes i can eat it assuming you've legally acquired it there's not going to be a vara claim uh under the law and i i would agree with that isaac that that excellent assessment you would be able to eat an 1851 masterpiece and interestingly enough this is actually also because vara came into being in 1990 so things before that technically are not covered by the law so yes you are right isaac if you had an 1851 masterpiece you could eat it if you had the Mona Lisa, somehow you could eat it. That's a little tricky because France, I'm not as familiar with France's moral mm. rights If you brought laws. it to the U.S. I if you right, somehow so you got said. into the U.S., you like, I don't know how you'd have to like, it'd be some national treasure heist. You'd have to really do an amazing job. But yes, I guess theoretically under U.S. law. But I, I feel like you get sued for something else. I'm not, I'm not a legal expert. You, you'd probably be sued for theft, I imagine, yeah. <laughs> of a national treasure. Also, it's on wood, so it would be really hard to eat. Yeah, we, we forgot to make this huge disclaimer. Don't eat art. Don't eat art, folks, unless you're meant to because it's very bad for you. Unless it's created by Rick Ritt, Tura then yeah. you can eat it. Yeah, yeah or Felix Gonzalez-Torres. Yeah. You can have candy. Okay, so that's scenario one. I can eat Washington Crossing the Delaware. Yum, I'm dead because I ingested a lot of lead paint. Two. This is the second scenario. I own a photograph taken by Richard Prince in 2016. I'd like to eat it. You, well, can I, Isaac? Can I eat it? <laughs> well, uh, I think anyone who's ever spoken to a lawyer or a law professor will recognize this answer. It depends. Photography is a little tricky because it sort of shows how Vara is extremely limited in the work that it applies to. So it only applies to paintings, drawing, print, sculptures existing in a single copy or in a limited edition of 200 copies or fewer. So photographs are separately defined. VARA does apply to photographs, but it's works produced for exhibition purposes in a single copy signed by the author and an edition of 200 copies or fewer consecutively numbered uh, by that author. So can I eat a Richard Prince photograph? I don't know. Is it in an edition of 201? Yes, go ahead, because VARA doesn't apply here. Is it not signed? You have a case, you know, so so you sort of see how the crafters of Vara, our beloved Congress, was very, it limited the scope, I'd say. It's smaller than I think many artists would think necessary to really cover the breadth of what conceptual visual art is today. 
I think that's totally right, Isaac. And 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 Isaac, as I'm rereading your article, this seems more and more like a law school test hypothetical <laughs> that we're going through a series of assumptions um, where we are pointing out various aspects of the law that are interesting. And, and so here, when we're talking about photographs, there is a distinction, Isaac, as you point out, between drawings and sculptures versus photographs as written into the law, as the law is assuming that um, photographs are inherently a medium that has the ability to be reproduced and that the, the, the law has specifically said in the case of photographs, it has to be in a limited print edition. It has to be numbered and it has to be signed. These are some of the things by which the law has said photographs are can be more like drawings or sculptures. Yeah, and you can kind of think, it, it, on some level you can understand why they would do something like that if, for example, you know, you're a, a fashion photographer and your work appears in a magazine and, like, s- someone decides to eat the page of that magazine, if VAR applies to all photography repro- reproduced anywhere by anyone for any purpose, theoretically, like, destroying a magazine full of photographs could violate the law. I think sort of an interesting point of view is is that um, the the law is, I think... Uh, pointing out sort of an interesting distinction between what property owners have the right to do to work versus what the artist has a claim to long after the artist has created the work. And particularly vis-a-vis Vara, the thing that sort of I, I'm, I, I think is so important, Isaac, that you said is that um, when Vara was put into law in 1990, perhaps the lawmakers were not necessarily thinking about the different types of mediums that will henceforth come to define contemporary art. So the third hypothetical, we're going to give you a couple more details about my Richard Prince photograph. So I own a photograph taken by Richard Prince in 2016. It's an edition of one and I'd like to eat it. Can I? Probably not. Vara here does apply. Richard Prince is almost anything he creates would probably be of a recognized stature. And and I think you have a good argument that that eating a work is prejudicial to to an artist's reputation. Maybe, I don't know. That's such a phrase that's been really tricky to define, I think. But I, I would say probably, yeah. And I think that you're right, Isaac, sort of reputational stature is sort of hard to define, especially when, you know, the question is, who is defining that stature? What does that reputation mean? Is it somebody in the art world who's deciding? Is it somebody who ordinarily reads the New York Times um, deciding? It's sort of hard to say. But I I think suffice to say, Richard Prince has enough of a recognized stature that I I think, in fact, in an edition of one, it would, would be quite difficult to eat that piece of artwork. And so the last one, I think, Isaac, is maybe my favorite scenario, or at least it's the most interesting one legally, which is, I own a photograph taken by Richard Prince in 2016. It's an edition of one. I'd like to eat it, but as a piece of performance art. This is this is the fun one. This is, I mean, I think this is genuinely a difficult question to answer. One of the experts that I spoke to, one of the professors I spoke to, said that you probably could make the argument that even though... Vara does apply, even though the artist can sue to try and st- to to try and get a judge to order you to stop with your attempted performance. You you might be able to turn around and say, well, listen, this is this eating of this photograph is itself a piece of performance art. I don't like Richard Prince's photographs. I don't like the messages in it, and it's a way to sort of comment on this work. Uh, me, famous performance artist, I'm going to 
this work. And that's fair use. And because VAR is part of copyright law, fair use uh, is a potential defense to any kind of claim. What if someone who was one of the people that Richard Prince stole the Instagrams from then turned around and ate their own Instagram? <laughs> that would be cool. I mean... That, that could potentially be a fair use argument. Yeah. And then as Isaac was pointing out, um, VARA is a small aspect of the copyright law. And one of the arguments that individuals can use against a claim of copyright infringement is this um, somewhat nebulous but well-established argument in fair use. And so fair use is made up of a number of prongs, um, of which some of which is, for example, if something is transformative, you could argue that what I am doing as I'm eating this piece of artwork as performance art is, is transformative, or I'm also making a social commentary, for example, about cultural consumption or conspicuous production or, or so forth. Then there is a, a there is a possibility, I think, that a fair use argument could prevail, potentially. It'd be a great case. I'd love to to see how that one panned out. And I think sort of the other thing is before a famous performance artist decides to potentially ingest a piece of artwork, the other thing that that performance artist could potentially do is go to the original artist and ask for a VARA waiver and, and say, go go to them and say, hey, um, would you be willing to like waive your rights to, to this work that you created and put out into the world? And I imagine post facto, if an artist got asked to do this, they would probably not sign it. But that would be sort of one of the legal ways in which sort of the performance artist or the collector who wants to eat the artwork could attempt to protect themselves in their active consumption. Which is also interesting because that's another difference between American copyright law. I mean, American moral rights in other countries, particularly in Europe, you can't waive your moral rights because... You even you, the artist, shouldn't get to decide when a cultural object that belongs to everyone can be destroyed. But in the United States, we're still probably a little more uncomfortable, <laughs> not letting every, anyone have a property right over something. So, so those, those the ability to waive vara stays with the artist. Yeah, we're gonna switch over to Solowit. So, I think we should probably lay out the particulars of this case first because it's a little complicated. So, there's a Solowit artwork on the wall of a Houston homeowner's house. And they're uncovering this artwork, but there's some contention over that. Why? So I should say outright that there's no lawsuit. Actually, all the parties that I'm about to talk about, no one's suing anyone. No one's trying to get anyone to stop doing anything, at least publicly. But there, there is kind of a, a conceptual butting of heads in, in some ways. So the, the story goes a little something like this. There was a Houston homeowner by the name of William F. Stern. Uh, he was a local architect who actually died recently, he commissioned Solowit to create a wall drawing for him, which Solowit did a, a fair amount. This was wall drawing number 679. It, it's a blue uh, grid of squares. So Lewitt paints this for uh, Stern in the 1990s. Stern uh, later dies, and he leaves the home to a, a local foundation called the Manil Foundation, which is in Houston. The Manil Foundation decides to sell the house, but they obviously can't remove this giant wall mural. So instead, they paint over it. They cover it up. And the current homeowner buys a house, moves in, and knows that somewhere in the home there is this LeWitt mural. But but for a very long time, it was just sort of this mythical presence in the house. How do you think they knew that that was the case? Because it was well documented. Ah, so it was very, he, William F. Stern was very famous within Houston or relatively famous. And there had been stories about him before he died uh, 
and that that had photos even of the mural. That's how we know what it looks like um, in in the house. But they had never dreamed of uncovering it, at least not seriously, until December of last year. When, as as the homeowner's daughter Jonah Hitchcock told me, a dinner guest took a butter knife to the wall mm. and just started chipping away. Which I think, you know, if someone came over to my house and started doing that, I'd probably freak out. But lo and behold, beneath uh, what turned out to actually not be paint, but but sheetrock mud, uh, were these stripes of color, which are the, the the hints of this this mural hiding. So to totally understand what's going on here, you kind of have to understand Solowitz's practice. Um, do you want to break it down really quick for us, Isaac? Like the work, mm. Solowitz's work is not the painting in this case, the mural. Yes. So this is something that the Manil Foundation will say um, and says about this situation, which is, and Lewitt would probably say honestly as well, the work isn't the pigment on the wall. The work is the idea. Solowitz was a conceptual artist. And that idea does take physical form in in the form of a certificate of authenticity, which includes instructions for how to execute the work, and also a maquette, a, a drawing, a model of the what the drawing would look like. So the work is the idea, but the tangible expression of that idea, at least as it as it currently is construed, are these certificates of authenticity, which the Manil owns. They're not at all trying to sue this this Houston homeowner to try and get them to stop. They're simply saying, well, you're ruining a great a great wall to uncover something that's not a real work, to which, you know, I think a lot of people would say, but wait, there's pigment on the wall. It looks nice. Do I not do I not still enjoy it? It's an interesting one. Let's also take a step back for a moment. In US copyright law, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately, but unfortunately, in this case, let's say, ideas um, and concepts cannot be copyrightable. And Isaac actually just said it. He talked about sort of tangible expressions. So when a, when something first comes into tangible being, when it is in a fixed tangible form, that is the first moment in which the right of copyright inheres or sort of pops up in the artwork. And so I think, and while I don't know this for sure, but I imagine the Manila Collection has spent a considerable amount of time, and perhaps even the Saul LeWitt Foundation has spent a considerable amount of time thinking about how copyright as a framework can protect Sol LeWitt's work, which, as everyone knows, is conceptual artwork. Um, and, and so that's probably why, in, in this case, the legal framework is protecting the certificate of authenticity plus the manual that talks about how to actualize Sol LeWitt's concepts. Right. And, you know, the interesting thing is you can't, if you somehow manage to just get a hold of one of these sets of instructions, which actually isn't that hard. You can find some online. And you followed those instructions perfectly to the letter, even though they're often kind of relatively vague and it's not like building in a piece of Ikea furniture, you know, which which is vague in a very different way. (laughs) (laughs) But even if you somehow did execute the instructions, you you still can't say, ah, I've got a Solowit on my wall now. There has to be uh, an authorized reproduction done with with authorized craftsmen uh, in conjunction with the foundation. And this is not the first time. I mean, there's no legal tussle here, but Lewitz have been involved in these legal tussles before. One interesting case actually uh, was from May of, I believe, 2012, where uh, a collector sued a gallery. Um, the collector's name was Roderick Steinkamp, and Rod had given a certificate of authenticity and uh, a maquette, which was which are these wall drawings for a wall drawing to 
a gallery, that gallery then misplaced or lost or basically said, we don't know where this is anymore and we can't get it back. They lost it. Yeah. And so the collector sued and the foundation was like, well, we're not recreating another one of these certificates. I think them saying that is pretty fair because what if, you know, the certificate popped back up and then you'd have two and then it's like, which one is the real idea? But it's also interesting because you start to imagine these old funny situations where like you execute a wall drawing and then you lose the certificate. So the idea is lost basically, but you have like the fragments like you have i don't know what it would be even like the shadow of the idea the execution of the idea but you can never have the idea again it's just like you have to preserve this mural forever otherwise it'll be gone which is kind of a funny one well it's interesting to think about this in the case in the case of living artists i think it's easier to possibly attempt to find them um either through their studio or through their representing gallery um if a collector has in fact lost a certificate but in the case of artists who are no longer with us, I think it's much harder, especially because it's it's um, hard, in fact, to think about what the artist was intending in terms of like how these certificates of authentic- authenticity and playbooks were meant to be in the future. Were they meant to be passed down? If, if a work was, quote, sold using the certificate, was that an intention that the original artist had? I mean, I think these are really interesting questions that I think will continue to pop up as um, there are more and more conceptual pieces in the, in the world. Yeah, I mean, it is interesting to see like judges try to grapple with kind of conceptual artistic questions. I mean, these laws weren't designed for art, right? Aren't they being well, kind of like retrofitted? Well, I mean, I guess VARA was. VARA was designed for art. Copyright to some extent. I mean, copyright didn't originally apply to photography, but... But I think that's also because it's we have to think about the historical context in which these laws came into being, where at that point in time when copyright came into being, there was no Internet, there was no photography. And so therefore, lawmakers didn't really have to think about it. But now, in fact, there are so many different ways in which artists create and produce that it is, as you say, Abigail, it's it's a little bit like there is a retrofitting that is happening, but that was not also intended either. Um, because it's more that the legal frameworks have not yet been able to catch up to the speed in which artists create and produce. Yeah, and Yoyo will correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not that uncommon for courts to retrofit laws sometimes if they need to. It depends on the, I think, the intent where I think judges might try to think about sort of the intent behind the law. And and interestingly enough, also, I think judges aren't claiming that they are art experts or art historians. Usually they'll try to rely on something that's called a reasonable person standard or like a standard of reasonability or reason. So that, that doesn't necessarily mean that the judge is claiming that he or she is attempting to define what art is or is not using the law. The last point I want to make is when you when you you do see judges kind of tackling some conceptual questions around VARA, like is a is moving a site specific work destroying it? You know, most art history one hundred and one students would say, oh yeah, because site specificity is absolutely everything. It's part of the message and the meaning. So far, there's been kind of conflicting feelings about that from the bench. Some I, there's one case where I believe. The court said, no, it's totally fine to move it. It's not destruction. But there have been other cases where in different in different district courts where they've looked at that and thought, well, maybe we should roll this back a little bit. 
And I, and I think it, it is a sort of a case-by-case -case basis by which these judges are attempting to utilize their the legal framework that they know and, and, and are well aware of and attempting to sort of figure out whether or not the legal framework is in fact working for the discussion of our, especially when it comes to site-specific work. Yep. All right. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor with White Wine. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that has allowed artists, designers, and photographers of all kinds to create websites showcasing their work. We spoke with one of them, artist Maud White. I am a paper-cutting artist and storyteller, and I live in Hudson, New York, in the Hudson Valley. We asked Maud to tell us about her process, including how long it takes her to create one of her incredibly intricate paper-cut works. Oh gosh, some pieces take weeks. For one thing, the beginning vision I have is never what it ends out to be in the end because it's cut paper, there's no erasing, and so it's always this really exciting, magical reveal at the end. I like working from old black and white photos because what I do is so positive and negative and that just makes it so much clearer. So I sketch it out, a rough guide, and then I have my knife and I use rubber thimbles on my fingers so my fingers don't go numb because I do cut a lot. You can see the results yourself on Maud's website, bravebirdpaperart.com, which she designed using Squarespace. I really love Squarespace. The templates are so beautiful, and especially the one I'm using. It's really clear cut. It fits with what I'm doing so well since I work in black and white. I've had really fun, great conversations with the support staff there who've been like, oh man, I'm looking at your website. This is so awesome, like while helping me. So it's just a really welcoming, helpful place. I'll say that. Make your work stand out with a beautiful website from Squarespace. Use the offer code ARTSY to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's offer code ARTSY, A-R-T-S-Y. And now, back to our show. And now it is time for a white wine. You know, where are you going to be drinking white wine in the art world this week? So um, I have had the pleasure of working with Tanya Buruguera in the past. Uh, she's a dear friend of mine. Um, she's a Cuban artist whose work is socially engaged, political, insanely powerful. And she has revisited an experiential work that apparently she first created for the Havana Biennial uh, in 2000 uh, and was summarily shut down by the Cuban government at that time. But now she has recreated it at MoMA. Uh, and it's already open, and I'm looking forward to experiencing that piece. And Isaac, what about you? I will be going to the Bronx Museum this week to check out uh, Gordon Matta Clark's exhibition. It's titled an architect. I always I, I always want to mispronounce that. I'm always like trying to mispronounce that Is word. Is it spelled strangely? It's like a mashup of architect and anarchist, Got but I, okay. I see NR and I, my brain just goes anarchist. Gordon Matta Clark is, is most famous for these kind of like incisions, sculptural incisions into, into homes. Is that like you mean cutting out like a slice? Of yeah, like slice, cut, basically cutting homes. homes and yeah, like in half. And, and this exhibition is is uh, about their kind of political engagement with uh, cities throughout the Northeast, um, including uh, looking in the Bronx in the 1970s. Um, I've heard this is a great show, and I'm really excited to to check it out. It's awesome. Have you seen it? I have not yet, but I look forward to seeing it. 
And I actually saw a show last weekend, um, Hockney at the Met, which I know we've talked about, but um, if you haven't seen it already, re- I'd highly recommend checking it out before it's closed. I think it closes at the end of this month. What was your favorite uh, piece in that show, Abby? Well, I was going to say there's one room with, I think, five of these life-size um, portraits of his friends and I guess some of his collectors too. And it's like two people in each one. And they're just amazing. I mean, the colors are great in all of them, but I don't know. And some, for some reason in those like five paintings, they're just like so saturated and everything looks so like stilted, but real at the same time. It's great. And then I also am really excited about another show that's opening at MoMA. I think the press preview is this week, but I think it's opening on Sunday. Um, Tarsila do Amaral. She's a Brazilian modernist um, who I think she spent some time in Paris in the 20s and then came back to Brazil and really pioneered this totally new kind of art making there. Um, And her stuff is incredibly saturated. It's got this really cool, almost like surrealist vibe. A lot of her figures have really huge feet and very small heads. I actually saw this work, uh, this, this show when it was at the Art Institute in Chicago and I really liked the pieces. There's only two of them, I believe, that that sh- that are in this show because it focuses on her early period. It it's when she's kind of become a little bit more politically left leaning, and so she has this extremely realistic portrait of workers' faces, which just contrasts so much with the kind of colorful, saturated images of the jungle. It's really interesting. So I hope those works travel too. All right. Well, I think that is it for today. Thanks so much to Isaac and Yoyoy. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you haven't already, also please rate the show. It helps other people find it. And you can always email us if you've already rated the show and you want to just say hi. We're at podcast at artsy.net. And and we have to shout out a special group uh, because we got a great email from Sarah McWright, who is a teacher at the Millbrook School in Hudson Valley, New York. And along with her husband, Jeffrey, teaches a course, I couldn't believe this, a high school course on legal issues in contemporary art. Um, and apparently they're big they're big fans of the show. So we hope, we didn't know that you were gonna email this. We've been planning this podcast for a long time, but we got this email just, just a couple days ago. So hopefully uh, this podcast helps with your uh, syllabus, your curriculum. And please send us more feedback and comments. See you next time. episode this week was produced by me abigail kane our theme music is by broke for free and the ad music is by jazar 